Hello, everyone. Welcome to Find the Outside, the podcast. We are here with the incomparable Andrew Grant Thomas. Andrew and I have been friends for years, and that's awesome. But actually, why we have him on the podcast is because he's doing some amazing work around issues of race and kids. He founded an organization called Embrace Race, and we have Andrew on today to talk about that. And so I mentioned, of course, that we're friends first because I hope that we're going to have you know a lot of fun talking and chatting with with each other, but that you're also going to hear kind of what's happening at the forefront of race right now. And certainly with things that have been, that have been occurring between Buffalo and between the Texas school shooting, right? Like, so the conversations around race right now are as always quite heavy. Um, and Andrew has had a long career in dealing with these issues and has shifted his perspective to really be talking about our children and race. And so we wanted to, we wanted to bring that to you. Um, we don't often work with kit with people who are working directly with children and on their behalf um, in the way I think that Andrew and his partner are. So that's it from me. I hope you enjoy it. This is Andrew Thomas. And uh, Tim, you want to say about anything about Andrew before we started? Well, I thought you were going to say incorrigible, but then you oh, said yeah. incomparable. Totally. But I think probably maybe that's a, re- maybe that's a good balance. <laughs> the incorrigible, incomparable, you know? We know that incomparable can go both ways, right? I don't think that was lost on me Tuesday. <laughs> right. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty passive. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not feeling good about how this is going, listeners. <laughs> We're 30 seconds in and I'm already like, oh, I might be, <laughs> I might be tag teamed on. No, you're all right, mate. <laughs> well, Andrew, I wonder if like we could just... If we could even just start with um, telling us a little bit about Embrace Race and what it is. And of course, we're going to ask to how you got here, but it would be great just to know what Embrace Race is. Yeah. Well, Tuesday, it's been lovely knowing you uh, all this time and great having met you a few years ago, Tim. Uh, Great to be here. So thanks for the invitation. Embrace Race is a national nonprofit Uh, organization that works with parents, teachers, other caregivers, meaning family members, grandparents, for example, therapists, pediatricians, so all adults who play a meaningful role in in the lives of kids to support those kids to be, as we say, thoughtful, informed, and brave about race. So we do that with resources, by trying to build a community, uh, lots and lots of work, and uh, it's picking up steam. I feel like we just got the spiel, which is wicked and important. And can you give us a little bit of the origin story? Like, how did it start? Was there a moment that you made the decision or that triggered in you the decision to put your considerable, incomparable, incorrigible <laughs> self forward? On, uh, do, do you know what I mean? There, there was a point at which you made the decision, right? And I'd love to just hear a bit about it. Yeah, there. I mean, you know, as is often true with decisions like this, which is certainly significant for us, I should say that the I'm one of the two co-founders. The other one is my life partner, um, Melissa Giroux. So this is a whole family event, right, and affair. Um, so that's a significant investment. I mean, this is our full-time work for both of us. Uh, so lots of roads, lots of strands uh, sort of entwined to get us here. So... Quickly, I would say, for example, you know, the fact that I was born in Jamaica, came here at a young age, at age seven in the 70s, the experiences we had, you know, my parents and I, I'm an only child, so it's the three of us, 
Uh, certainly those early experiences with race in our family, coming from a place, by the way, that was 90% or so Black uh, in Jamaica and coming to New Haven, Connecticut, and um, just having a lot of experiences around race. Then later on, you know, my PhD is in political science, but with an emphasis on race and public opinion in the United States, right? So that's my sort of uh, training there. And I've done a lot of work around race, whether it's criminal justice, immigration, housing, education, health, really the big domains that people talk about. So that's part of it as well. And certainly meeting a lot of amazing people doing fantastic work then and now and thinking, you know what, and there's this piece, really crucial piece that's missing, which is literally how are we raising our children, mm-hmm. right? How are we raising our children? And then, um, you know, Melissa and I have been together a long time, our children for less than half of our relationship, and they are now 11 and 14 years old. And when they were, you know, when the older one was, was probably actually when we were even thinking about becoming parents, uh, but certainly once we became parents and kids were very young, it's meeting a number of other parents and children, um, I'm sorry, parents and teachers, and thinking, okay, we have, I have, Melissa has these strong convictions about the place of race, ethnicity, but also gender, class, identity more broadly. Mm-hmm. Really strong convictions uh, about um, the, the, the role of those sort of identity dimensions in the lives of individuals and families and community, but really being pretty, feeling pretty clueless and at a loss about what do we do? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So we have that conviction. What does, how should it translate into our practice as parents and aunts and uncles and the other things, the other hats we might wear, educators in some cases. So all of that, I think, combined. And so those are sort of some of the maybe obvious things to point out. I'll just point out a couple Again, this is a whole life thing. So for me, certainly, it was also about, gosh, I'd love to work with my partner, right? With Melissa in a different sort of way, right? So you become a parent, and very often the other, your partner, suddenly becomes primarily, right, the co-parent, right? That becomes a primary identity. And that's a different kind of relationship than, you know, let's say the one that you and Tim have. Right, as, as sort of business partners and thought partners in this important work that you do. So, anyway, lots of uh, things come together, but those are some of the main ones. So, I'm so interested to hear you say that. And also a little relieved, Andrew, because I know when you founded Embrace Race, I was like, oh, right. I feel like I should know how to talk to my kids about this. And I should know how to kind of usher them through childhood into a formed racial identity as an adult, but I actually really don't, right? I actually really have, like you said, very strong convictions and my own evolving identity to kind of look back on, but my kids have a really different experience. They're in a very different time. And so I felt when you formed Embrace Race, I was like, right, because we also just expect parents of color to know what to do right? Just because we have the skin like, oh, of course, you know how to do this. And then even as you just said it, I felt relief again, thinking, right, in the conversation I had with my kids as they were coming up about skin color and and how what they call themselves is radically different. Even my 14 and 18 year old, the conversations are really quite different. And so it's just like anything else. Like it's not something we're taught, even when we have lived experience. Absolutely. And I should say, you know, to say that 
you know, we didn't were a lot of bad with this uh, sort of um, recognition that we needed support and think, oh, let's start this thing. I mean, we looked for support, right? We looked for the books. We looked for the online communities. We looked for online resources. And it's not that they weren't there, but it was pretty sparse, right? And much of, and you mentioned being, you know, parents of color and this, uh, parents of color, kids of color, and this assumption about what we know and don't know already. Uh, well, even among those scarce resources, they were disproportionately geared at white parents of white kids, right? Implicitly or explicitly, clearly that was the audience for which they were intended. So yeah, there was really remarkably little for you know parents like us, right? Who are people of color, of children of color. And so it was not finding those, right? And this was like before Trump, right? Before it was really in the wake of um, in the wake of Barack Obama. Right, his presidency and sort of this backlash against his presidency, and again the community too—not just the resources, but looking for a community of people, which felt really important. Right, some fellow travelers who share our concerns, precisely because, by the way, you know you're not going to find the resources. Resources alone aren't enough, no matter how wonderful they are. Right, understood as like pieces of paper and things that you read. So it was after you know having looked around and realizing that lots of people. Quite a few people, anyway, share our concerns, and it's like, okay, well, maybe we can help fill that gap a little bit. I've got like thirty different questions, so I've just got to pick one. And so, um, I think the one I want to ask at the moment is like, what's been your experience of trying to grow Embrace Race, mm. right? In a structurally biased society, in a structurally biased education system, like, what's been your experience of that? How have you navigated that? And the kind of follow-up is like, and of course, there's incidents always happening. There's context always changing as well that I imagine you're having to be responsive to. Yeah, that's a great question, Tim. And there are a, you know, a bunch of answers to it uh, that pop right to mind. So one of them is, you know, we have to think about what we're trying to do, right? So grow it with what purpose, right? So one thing is, you know, I'd say the uh, kind of most accessible end uh, for Embrace Race is, you know, a place where people like yourselves, right, who are parents, could come if something happens in school, the kid says something, something, you know, the kid overhears something. You know, of course, we've had a spate of racialized, high-profile incidents recently. So imagine if your four-year-old hears something about Uvalde, Texas, right, and says, what happened there, and whatever, so that is right. parents looking for, usually looking for a way to respond to something that's happened. So that's, you know, so that's about, okay, can we, what are the kinds of things they'll be asking? And how do we go beyond simply the immediate response, what you say in the moment? How do we develop, right, something a little bit more robust uh, as a way of thinking about what your parenting might be? But at the other end of the, the spectrum, as it were, the continuum of things we're trying to account for uh, in, in developing our work and growing Embrace Race is, to me, fundamentally, this is about the future of multiracial democracy, for real. Mm. Right? Like, how are we to be together as a group of what is currently 330 million people, right, in which race is deeply implicated in so much of the way that interaction happens and doesn't happen, right? Race affects you know, who we marry, who our friends are, our policy preferences and all sorts of things, literally whom we stop for or don't stop for at crosswalks. 
for real, a whole bunch of things, uh, much more, I think, than most people realize. The future of multiracial democracy is implicated in all of that. How are we to be together as a group of millions and hundreds of millions of people? So all of that is part of it. I'll give you just one more answer and certainly could elaborate, but one more answer uh, in terms of the growth, which is really crucial. The um, George Floyd's murder in May of 2020 was an absolute before and after moment for us in terms of growth. Mm -hmm. Right. So of course we had George Floyd's murder on May 25th on that very day, that very morning in uh, Central Park in New York, right? Amy Cooper and Kristen Cooper encountered each other in the park. And that was also a high profile uh, story. Uh, then, you know, all the nationwide protests, of course, months and months of national on and on, right? Anti-Asian violence and hate throughout all of this, more and more January 6th, subsequently, all of that. Well, in the, you know, just to give you an example of what that meant for us and our growth, in mid-May, we had about 14,000 people on our email list. By the end of July, we had 55,000 people on our email list. So we were already doing our webinars. We had, you know, I think we had maxed out uh, in registration for a given webinar, maybe 1,500 people before that. In the week after um, Floyd's murder and Amy Cooper and Kristen Cooper having their encounter in Central Park, we had two webinars, which attracted together 15,000 registrants. Wow. Right, having maxed out at 15 in the three years or four years of webinars we've been doing before then, we got a lot more money, including from corporate entities, which was brand new to us. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those, well, I would say a lot, but certainly some of those entities and lots of others approaching us for partnership, for substantive partnership. So yeah, absolute before and after. Um, and certainly more broadly, you know, um, you know the Trump uh, four years, Black Lives Matter, you know, all the different in Charlottesville, I mean, all these things we could point to. Um, certainly people have been <laughs> sitting up and taking notice. So I want to go back to the multiracial democracy, but I'm just going to like, because I definitely, because like that makes me very excited. But Tim, I'm going to ask a question first. I'm going to ask a question around how are you? Okay. So I just like, I'm feeling the opportunity, like you said, of that moment and the expansion that happened and also like what had happened around, like just, it makes it feel a little less than, yeah, yeah, it just makes it a little mixed, right? Like uh, this, you know, like, of course, Embrace Race took off, which is amazing. And so the question I want to ask you is around how you're making choices about what you do, right? Like, how do you decide, you know, you've got all of this attention, you've got this opportunity coming, you said money's coming, partnerships are coming, you've got audience, how are you deciding what to do? After that moment, how are you? How are you all prioritizing and making decisions? Well, oh, we're not. We're just doing it all. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I know you. You likely are just doing it all. It is. A, it's. It's a great question. So we have a. We have a strategy, right? We have areas of focus, and we're trying to be more and more disciplined about, right, um, about being guided by that strategy and those areas of focus. So our three areas of focus are our three pillars. Let's call them programmatic pillars, right? Or resource building. You know, so yeah, what are the tools, resources that people can use to do this work, right? In very sort of research-informed ways. Second, community building, 
So let's, again, put people in relationship with each other. We do not want to be, you know, the hub in a hub and spokes kind of model, right? I mean, we want those relationships, but there's so much wisdom in the community of people who are trying to do this work. So community building is crucial. And then the third piece is what we call field building. So we're going to really go, right? Our aim is not to support even, let's say, thousands and thousands of families and adults. It's really to help build a movement, Mm. literally help build a movement of people, not to say everyone, not everyone is going to be part of this, but hopefully millions of people, right? Educate all the folks we named, um, you know, a critical mass, whatever that turns out to be, but lots and lots of people say what you say, you know what, we do need to do this work. And not only do we need to do this work at home or in the classroom, but we need to follow the implications of this beyond that, right? Beyond those venues into community, into society at large, into all of our institutions, right? So imagine if you could get, again, lots and lots of people who are not only doing it close to home, but who think, you know what, I need to be an advocate for this in my, for, for the, the sensibility, right? And the analysis that informs this in my workplace, in my places of worship, in my, all of that, that's what we're trying to do. So that becomes, yeah, I think, you know, the, that sort of three-part um, prism, you know, or three-part structure becomes a prism through which we make decisions about uh, you know, what we take on and what we, what we can't. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. And so when you say advocate for this, I want to bring that round to this multiracial democracy. Right, because I feel like in that simple word, not simple word, I say in that word is something of your values, is your is your is your scenario, is your directionality. You, you know what I mean? And of course it it points to something that that is just the very the word itself points to something that has greater access than I think what exists right now. You know, so I'd just love for you to speak a little bit. You're, you're, you, you just, you know, you threw the word in there, like, you know, it's like, oh, I have a bite on that, you two. And so I'd love to just, uh, I just to love, I just love to hear you talk about it more, you know, and uh, give us a bit, give us a bit more than a taste. It's a great pickup, Tim, um, because by advocate, I mean something actually broader than people may think, right? So, for example, when we say advocacy, very often the context for folks or the association for a lot of people is policy advocacy, for example, right? So like formal legislation that you're going to stump for certainly could mean that. There are clearly implications, but I mean something um, in that in many cases will be much closer to home for each of us personally, right? So we are all influencers in a very local sense, right? Like the people close to you, there are people, right? I'm talking about your friends, your family, maybe just your child that you can influence. You can advocate for, again, this sort of belief or that kind of belief, whatever it may be. Let me give you a very specific uh, example that I that I love. You know, my very good friend, Courtney Mikaton, who um, absolutely tragically died prematurely uh, in a car accident two years ago. She founded an organization, absolutely amazing woman and advocate, who founded an organization called Integrated Schools, where uh, you know, Courtney was a 
she would have called herself a privileged white woman and the mom of two kids, white children, and planned this organization to get other what she called white and or privileged parents, especially but not only of white children, to consider integrating right uh, or integrated schools for their children, right, and especially integrated public schools as opposed to you know we're going to look for the private school, etc. She tells this story. She was on our one of our webinars, and she tells the story of moving into her. Uh, South LA neighborhood. Her kids were very young. There was a neighborhood school. She went to a neighbor, a white neighbor, and in you know when she had recently moved in, in the course of the conversation, said, "You know, what about the school? You know, what do you think about the, the neighborhood school?" And the neighbor uh, said, "Oh, you know, nobody sends their kids to that school." Mm. And this was a almost entirely black and Latina school, right? And Courtney said, there are kids in that school. So somebody sends their kids to that school. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> to me, that is advocacy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? It's interrupting this idea. I mean, now this woman, I'm sure, a lovely person, right? Didn't mean any harm, certainly not explicit. But what is she saying when she says nobody sends their kids to that school? Clearly she's saying, well, nobody like us. Yeah. Right, right. Middle upper middle class white parents, etc. No, no, that shouldn't even be an option. That shouldn't even be on your radar, you know. And she would doubtless go on to talk about again this public school or homeschooling or whatever she was going to say. Courtney is saying no, no, no. Right? Actually, those are not only children in that school who have parents who sent them there, but they are fully, you know, as human. Mm-hmm. That's our children. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, what integrated schools, she hadn't founded integrated schools yet, but what integrated schools now does, and I'm on, I'm on the board of integrated schools, is among other things, they ask people, uh, parents, uh, again, these white and or privileged parents, to take a pledge that they're going to look at the neighborhood school, mm. right? That you're going to tour the school, Right, so don't just buy the hype about you know whatever these schools are graded and the test scores, and as if the value of a school and a community can be reduced to you know what the average standardized test score is. Go and look at the school, walk the corridors, talk to the people, observe the kids, right? Talk to the head of school. Obviously, then make your choice. But anyway, you see the idea. To me, that advocacy and this idea of right. It's really easy for us, you know, let's say, depending on our political leadings to really be ticked off at Trump or really be ticked off at Pelosi or whatever, or whoever, right, that sort of rich and powerful are. But so much of the action, right, so much of how things turn out, it's really about what we do, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. The 300 and, you know, 29 million, whatever, whatever, who don't consider ourselves among the elite in the country who don't, you know, who aren't the billionaires, who aren't the political power brokers, but collectively what we do, like the decisions we make if we have the choice of where to send our kids to school. So advocating in those middle spaces mm-hmm. becomes absolutely critical. So yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, up to the the normal things you might think about as advocacy, but from that really local, how am I using my influence to shape how people think about these important issues. And that builds the type of democracy that you're talking about, right? That kind of willingness to step up and in to relationship with each other. 
certainly much, you know, there's much more, I think, involved in that. But those of us, you know, I think there is in this country, um, and I'm certainly as guilty of it as anyone else, there's such a distance, right, from many of us between the convictions we say we hold, the values we say we hold, and whether and how they're expressed in the world, right? So, yes, if we, we need far more of us need to express, and obviously, you know, there are lots of people in the country whose values aren't aligned with mine, right? And in fact, a lot of people whose values aren't aligned with mine who are expressing those values in their behavior. We need more people who, you know, think our kids across lines of race and within lines of race and ethnicity, culture, et cetera, we should be seeing each other as fully human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, we, race and ethnicity shouldn't be uh, the way we divide those we love and care for and hug, right, from those we don't. Mm-hmm. And if you believe those things, then it's not enough for it to stay up here in your head. It needs to be manifest in the world. There are no sidelines. If ever there were, there are no sidelines to to sit on. We need to, you know, as it were, enter the game. Wow. Um, so I like that you said that because often we, you know, we say, you know, this isn't, well, I don't, Tim, I don't even know how you say it, but like there's often a, a line we give when we we invite people into training, like, you know, this isn't for sitting on the sidelines, right? You have to jump in. And, and what occurs to me, Andrew, is it sounds like some of the things you just said, I mean, I feel like, you know, you have such a, such a kind manner as you say them that I feel like some of your radical stuff just like can people can hear it, but it doesn't actually feel which is probably one of your superpowers. Let's be honest, like you can just say these things. Um, and people are like, Oh, yeah, that sounds pleasant. And they're like, Wait, what did I just agree to? Huh? <laughs> that sounds pleasant. <laughs> that sounds really nice. But it occurs to me like I feel like you're really talking about uh, and maybe because this just has my tinge right now, but like you're really talking about a, a, a pretty significant but subtle shift in beliefs. Many of us will think like, of course, we're fully human. Of course, I care about other people's children. I want them to have the opportunities, but I don't ever get to like, and what is my thinking about schooling? And what is my thinking about healthcare? And what is my thinking about where I allow my kids to play and the neighborhoods I move into and then how I engage with the neighbors? So it feels like folks even have like many, like you said, not everyone, but many folks have this kind of top level worldview belief, right? That's like, I would say is deeply aligned, but it's like when you get to the, like the little the small choices and what occurred to, and, and the smaller beliefs, the subtler beliefs. And what occurred to me when you were giving that example about your friend is the woman who said, you know, no one sends their children there, never thought for a moment, I'm sure, about no one and what that means about the kids there. Like in that, like what you just said, just just that small interruption of like, well, somebody sends their children there, <laughs> right? Begins to get to beliefs in a really radical, but very subtle way. And I feel like so much of our rhetoric is so big. I was listening to um I'm sure I'm going to get to a question in any moment, but we'll see. Uh, I was listening to a podcast recently and um, (laughs) it's fine, Tim. You can go ahead and laugh at me. And uh, it was around, (laughs) it was around, um, there was a trans activist, right? And uh, the entire podcast talked about TERFs which, right, which is like this kind of like group of radical feminists who are opposed to, well, you know what, I don't even want to give a definition, whatever. But the whole podcast, they talked about TERFs and I thought, no, 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 that's actually, that's obvious. 
that is obvious that there's not acceptance there. What we need to work on is like people like me who are like, no, no, I, I want to be accepting and inclusive and loving. And I have questions and I probably have some really messed up ideas because of the way I was socialized gender wise. And like, but, but until someone interrupts me, but if you only interrupt me as if I'm like this fear mongering, hateful person, like you never actually get to my subtle beliefs. I've got that high level beliefs, but the subtle beliefs are what keep me transphobic, even though I don't want to be. So I love that idea of advocacy being kind of smaller every day in the middle actions even though I don't think that's really sexy and it doesn't make a very nice listicle. I really like it. It's certainly, and to be sure, the big things, again, the policy things and the, you know, whatever, those big advocacy pieces that we name more often think about as advocacy, those are important. No questions. They're, they're hugely important. You know, the fact that um, you know, a lot of legislatures around the country are passing anti-so-called, uh, right, anti-critical race theory Build into law you know, is really important. You know, there are a lot of teachers across this country right now who are terrified um, that they're going to be, you know, fall afoul of someone, right? It's hugely important. And, you know, most of us, most of the time, don't think that those are the arenas in which we can play, mm-hmm. right? Which means that we don't hold ourselves accountable to the things that we can do, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, there is actually a name that captures much of what you just pointed to Tuesday and that social scientists talk about, which is, you know, it's called the uh, principal implementation gap. And it's, uh, it's this idea that lots of us, you know, will say, in principle, we believe this. In principle, you know, we support affordable housing. In practice, <laughs> there's actually no practical you know, like affordable housing development that we would support in our neighborhood. Right. Right. But yeah, no, no, we, we love affordable housing. That's great. And we think it should be mixed income. And we want, you know, people who've been, you know, gone through all kinds of stuff to be able to, of course, we do. But in practice, there's actually nothing that you could describe to them that they would support in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's where we have to, at the end of the day, I don't care what you think. Right. And perhaps even what you feel. I care about what you think and what you feel insofar as it's a guide to your behavior, Hmm. right? So at the end of the day, we need to ask ourselves, what is our behavior? The fact that, you know, some terrible thing happens in the world and, you know, you cry into your soup, and this sounds harsh, is actually not, that doesn't mean very much in the end, right? That you shed tears. The question is, what do you do? Right. The world, right, to enact your belief, your feeling, etc. And we do need to ask ourselves that not that we can do all the things, but pick some spots. Right. If you're someone who has some disposable income, use it. Pick some, right? Do a little bit of research about all of those things. Yes, it's voting, it's giving away, it's volunteering your time, it's you know, teaching your kids into whatever you can do. But we have our part to play whatever role, whatever our particular individual status, all of those things. That last piece that you were talking about, like that this is in how we turn up, it's in what we do, you know, because I think that, I just think the philosophical beliefs, behavior debate, it just can go on forever while people discuss it, you know, and it just like circles round and round rooms. 
you know, but when you actually look around and say, who's doing what where I live? Mm. And that's how I find my people. Mm. Like I look around in my community and I say, who's doing something? That's who I want to hang out with. <laughs> who's, willing, who's willing to actually step up and take some kind of responsibility for their opinion or their passion or their perspective and like put it into action, risk putting it into action. This is it's huge, Tim, right? So here's the thing, right? It's not only about the, the, the particular thing you do, right? And, and, and the immediate impact of that particular thing. It's also the signal you send, right? To yeah, your peers, exactly. to those in your community. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the example I gave of um, Courtney, you know, talking to her neighbor, I mean, the, the reason I often sort of invoke that example is, again, Courtney had two young children. You know, this woman had children. I don't know how old those children were. But it's entirely possible that at least because they had just moved in and they were very young, that at least one of Courtney's children was with her, mm-hmm. right? So imagine this child hearing that conversation and not only right, the child is picking something up, right? The child perhaps hears the neighbor saying nobody sends their kids there. And over the course of many interactions, this is a strong message, right? Because a child also will see as they go by that school or walk by that school, but knows who's in there. He sees or she sees that there are children in the school. So the child is at some point is making sense of only implicitly of how do you put these things together? She said no one sends their child there, but their children in the school. Happily, he will also have heard his mom say exactly this, right? This is the way that we pick up all of us, but certainly children pick up on the messages about the meaning of race, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, who do we recognize? Again, who do we recognize? Who do we love? All of that kind of stuff. It's important. That's where <laughs> the work happens and the interpretations happen. So I feel like if I don't ask this question, people will be like, why would you not ask that question? And I guess because people come to you after, you know, after an incident, they're looking like, oh my gosh, how do I talk to my children about race? And I'm curious, what are some of the first things you say? I'm not looking for an exhaustive list, but I'm like, how do you begin to approach your kids? And and yeah, you can do that however you'd like. You can do it by age or like, but what are what is some of the advice you find yourself giving out pretty consistently to folks who are engaging with Embrace Race? You know, let me go to what I think of as some core principles, right? So thinking, for example, about our children and how we'll try to do it, which is, first of all, to say super imperfectly, mm-hmm. right? Super imperfectly. <laughs> Again, there's a gap between principle and practice mm-hmm. often. Typically, there's a gap. So one thing is listen, right? Listen to those. Rather than what we say, listen to those children. Mm -hmm. So many people think that kids are oblivious to race, right? That young children don't see it, don't act on it. It's just not true, right? We have a mountain, several mountains of evidence, research evidence. You don't have to take my, you know, this person's uh, belief. My belief, in fact, is informed by what we know for sure. And in fact, kids start developing their racial sensibilities literally at months, right? Three months of age, six months of age. Not to say they recognize race in the way we do, but, you know, for example, they gravitate towards uh, people who look like their primary caregiver. And in this country, that's almost always same race individual, especially among white uh, kids and families. And it goes from there. Something that we might, that we would recognize as a bias kicks in, you know, at three, four, five years of age. 
Um, there's no question about that. So listening to, you know, the signals, the observations that our kids are making, drawing them out, being willing to have those conversations, certainly encouraging them to have, right? They should, our children should not grow up thinking, as too many of them do, that race is a taboo subject in your home. That is crucial. Then, you know, being honest, sharing what your thinking is, right? Distinguishing, you know, uh, because I've done so much work, Melissa and I've done so much work on race before Embrace Race, you know, I've been at some pains not to be dogmatic, right, with my children, because, yeah, I have really strong ideas, and I've learned a lot. Um, but even if I wanted them to think what I think, sort of lecturing them is not the way to do it, right? Like anyone who's a parent <laughs> knows that that's not the way to get it across. Nope. So it's, you know, my preferred way is to treat them as they're learning, they're growing, their brains are shaping, and they're fully human from the beginning. Right, so treat them like they're fully human. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have a conversation, and I'm going to do a lot of listening. You know, another piece for me is I do want to what I where I do have an advantage, as it were, over them is I do know some factual things that they don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Right, I've studied this stuff, so I try to distinguish between what I know to be true or what I can sort of back up and the things that are my opinions. Um, so I want to share some you know, factual things with them as it pertains to what we might be talking about. Um, so, you know, I mentioned, for example, the thing about crosswalks, right? It is literally true that the likelihood of a car stopping at a pedestrian crosswalk, and then once a car stops, how much the car impinges into the crosswalk uh, section is a function of the perceived race and gender of the person waiting to cross. Oh my gosh, wow. Right, and probably two of the driver, but we don't actually have that information. That is, you know, that's something that I shared because that was, right, that is a, right, that is very much a ordinary person thing, right? Mm-hmm. And not to obviously, to be clear, it's not to say everyone does or anything, but the pattern across lots of interactions between drivers and people waiting at crosswalks is very clear. Mm-hmm. Black people have to wait significantly longer, for example, than white people for a car to stop. And then when the car does stop, that car is much more likely to impinge into the crosswalk space, which then of course feels very, which feels threatening, which feels perhaps intimidating. This is a really, right. We talk about police officers shooting on our black or brown people but this is also about Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. I know, by the way, when I ride my bicycle, I absolutely ride down a street. I've absolutely noticed that cars are, when they you know, go around me, are much less likely to give me wide berth, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, you know, just to trigger an intuition that will likely hold for a lot of people, you know, if, if there were a young mom pushing her stroller, right? presumably with a baby in it down the street or crossing the crosswalk, all, almost all of us would give wide birth. We're going to stop well before. Well, there's a flip side to that. Right, right. Right. So sharing just some factual information with my kids. And then I'll say two other things. One is, I think one of the big lessons on race and ethnicity that certainly I want my kids to appreciate is 
there is both sameness and difference, right? This idea of sameness and difference. So there's lots of, you know, DACA recipients, you know, Black Americans, Latine Americans, Asian, all these, on one hand, these are obviously incredibly diverse groups of people. And there is something that is probably more characteristic, right, of the quote-unquote Asian American experience than it is of the experiences of other groups of people. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, that's true. And at the same time, there's phenomenal diversity and variation within the group, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a shorthand is there is as much variation. There's more variation within each of those groups and across them, Mm -hmm. right? So in various ways, always trying to share that. And then just one last thing that, that occurs to me, which is modeling the world to the extent that we can, the world we want to see is crucial. So what I say is one thing, but what do we do? Who comes into our house mm-hmm. right? Like for dinner, for potluck, to watch a movie, just to chat? Who drops by? Whose home do we go to? Right? Who are, who's our chosen family, in other words? Mm-hmm. Because that, I think, sends an incredibly powerful signal about whom we value whom we like, whom we love, whom we cherish, whom we respect, and who's on the walls of our house, right? Um, And it's one thing to say one thing, but have (laughs) these powerful signals that suggest something very different than to say one thing and have that reinforced by, again, who our people are. So those are some sort of top-line stuff. It's great. I'm also going to totally expect your children to be perfect around race. I mean, they were, what? Come on. Like when they get, just be like, it's like the therapist kids. They're always the most well-adjusted, of course. You know what, Tuesday? Yeah, right. Exactly. And I'm a therapist. No, I'm not. I'm not a therapist. <laughs> Thank goodness for my children. I will say this team, which is, well, you're both T, T and T. I should also confess that, you know, our kids, you know, are like sick of hearing about it. Yeah. <laughs> We are, yeah, we have this powerful, it's like, okay, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, you know, a few years ago, um, Halloween, oh, I want to go as a witch, you know, I want to go as a ghost. It's like, oh, a witch, well, you know, let's talk about witches, you know, because, you know, there are, you know, Wiccans and like, I just want to go to, I just want to go to Halloween, okay, but you just like, totally. Totally. So that's also a line to walk, right? Absolutely. And I just, and Tim, I know you're leaning in, but just like one, one quick thing, Andrew, when I, when we took Zane, my son to college visits, right? So I'm just thinking about the generational difference, right? So we go over to these college visits and I'm asking questions like, you know, how do you support the kids of color? And Zane's looking at me like I have two heads. He's like, I'm going to be fine. And I don't even know why you're asking these questions. And one of the admissions counselors, the director of admissions looked at me and she goes, they don't think about it like we do Tuesday. She's like, it's not. She goes, I had the same questions for my kids, another black woman. I had the same questions for my kids and they were just as uninterested as your son. And it's just a different. And I was like, oh, so there's also like not putting my lens, right? Like having grown up, like I, we have in some ways a similar background, having grown up in an all white environment and, and thinking about affinity groups and wanting to be with my people, but my children have a different sensibility. It's not at all that race isn't incredibly important to them, but it's different from how I think about it. And so like to kind of put that overlay on them just hasn't worked. So I think that you're going back to like listening to them, asking questions, sometimes giving facts because occasionally their mom knows something, not very often, but occasionally, but like, you know. Well, what 
and your again your ideas i i, I certainly am seeing this again with, with my 11 and 14 year olds now but you know all that's happened over the years right all those conversations all that sort of modeling all the you know and they've certainly taught us things too have been integrated right into their worldview so yeah they're coming up with you know literally yesterday you know our older one um, made an observation about the invisibility of race to her white friends mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. you know and that they don't for example think about their racial identities or anyone's racial identities at least not explicitly when they think about how are people perceived but she does mm -hmm. right so yeah, the, the sort of what's right in front, they may push back and, you know, and yes, they want to be their own people. They want to, you know, yes, our experiences can't be just imposed on their circumstances. But I think um, hopefully we've given them some tools, at least for, you know, for making sort of critical appraisals of the circumstances in which they find themselves. I hope so, man. I'm playing the long game on so many dimensions. I just, <laughs> just like, I mean, just plant the seeds. Who knows? Who and that's knows? huge, though, Tuesday. Playing the long game, right? As they say, marathon, not a sprint, hugely important. So many people think it's just about, not just about, but that it's about, you know, gearing up for the big conversation. Yeah. You know, then it becomes really fraught because, gosh, I don't have the words and I messed that up. No, we're going to mess up all the time. But if you think of it as right, this ongoing sort of series of, of conversations and interactions, well, that should change, right, across all kinds of circumstances and certainly where your kids are developmentally and all of that stuff, what they have to say, what they're bringing to the table, then there's much less pressure on any one of those things, Right. And it's fine to mess up. And it's like, you know what? let's revisit that. Because, yeah, let me do some thinking about that. Let's do some research together about something we don't, you know, neither of us knows. That I would, that's another thing to add to the list. Right. Keep coming back to it. Hmm. Got two, two little stories, then a, then a question to kind of converge us here. So, like, one was uh, years and years ago working with our, uh, incredible facilitator I was working with, but she had, she was a recovering alcoholic and, uh, and she just, I remember us sitting down one night and her saying to me that what I, she said, I realized too late that my kids don't listen to what I say. They copy what I do, mm. you know, and she's now got, she had two kids in rehab at the time. Right. Mm. And out of her three, you know, and it just, you know, when you were just like, I know it's a very succinct say of, way of summarizing something that is far more nuanced that you were both were articulating, but it just reminded me of that little, I had, had a flash of that conversation sitting across from this woman and her saying that. And then the other night um, I was putting Elliot to bed and we got, we got talking about a, a member of our community uh, and an incident of racism that happened in our community. And, and then he started kind of extrapolating and he's like, oh, it was, and it was someone who hadn't got a job because they were black. And then people in the community had to take a stand. Right. You know, and, uh, and I remember Elliot was just like, Oh, it was because he was black. That he didn't get the job. And I was like, well, that was a piece of it, son. Yeah, that was a piece of it. And then of course the stories of what's been going on in Texas. And he was like, Oh, it's like when that man went into that school in Texas. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And, and he got to talk about that. And he goes, and he goes, then there was that video of that man. And he's talking about George Floyd you know, who had a police officer kneeling on him 
and then he couldn't breathe and then he died. And then, but the thing that stuck in his head the most was that what he remembered most from that story was that George Floyd's last words were mummy, you know, and then he just like cried, Aww. you know, mm. cause it was just like, he could, he just wanted his mum, <laughs> you know, and my little nine year old boy could get that, you know, and, and, and there was, I don't know. And so I, so we just kind of like sat there and felt sad together for a while, you know, and then cuddled up and kissed and went to bed. And so I just think it's amazing. Like you, I can't imagine of having had those conversations in my family when I was nine years old. I mean, that just, there's so many layers of which that never would have happened. <laughs> you know, like we wouldn't even, yeah. we wouldn't even had, had an, a, a conversation about emotions before bed, let alone about ra- race or if it had been race, let alone have followed that trajectory, you know? And I don't know where, anyway, so those two stories came to mind, just, just hearing the two of you talk, those two stories, was it were kind of like flashing through my eyes mm. as, I just, as I listened to you both. And, Can I just say to him, yeah. first of all, that's beautiful. It's, it's lovely to know that you have those interactions with your son. I definitely also wouldn't have had that, uh, certainly not with my father as, as a boy. Um, and, and it brought to mind just one other thing, you know, this lengthening list of sort of core things. I think this idea that I think it's so important to tell our kids that and support our kids to have voice, right? And to be advocates in the sense that I expressed, right? We can, you know, yes, can your nine-year-old son, you know, make a dramatic intervention in, you know, the sort of policing system? No, probably not. But to have a conversation about, yes, yeah, so we feel sad, absolutely worth taking a moment, maybe a long moment just with that feeling. But can that feeling also translate into something? Right. Um, you know, my with Melissa, with our two kids, when they were much younger, they went into a Target store and noticed that the dolls, uh, that there were almost no dolls of color, right, in some particular brand. And that the one doll of color that was there out of many was literally sitting on the bottom shelf, right? Um, least visible. And they observed and they were a little bit upset. And then you know, Melissa said, okay, what should we do about it? You know, and they talked about some possibilities and ended up talking to the manager, right? And then writing a letter, you know? And again, it's not, again, primarily because that may move something, although they hope to move something, right? And we think about the kind of dolls they get and who are they right, trying to speak to and, and all of that. And by the way, right, white children should also have dolls of color, not right, etc. But I think there's real value simply in saying, you know what, you are an agent in the world, right? You have a voice. You can have that voice be heard, especially in the face of all the things happening that dismay so many of us so much. I can tell you that one of the absolute blessings of doing this work and meeting folks like you right? And Tuesday and I've done some work in the past is A, meeting people like you, right? You realize, oh, you are not alone by any means in this work. There are other people who share your concerns and convictions and doing something, right? That you have reason to believe pushes in the right direction because, you know, this reality is socially constructed. We collectively made it. And, you know, X number of years from now, they're going to be, there's a range of possible futures, right? It's not every possible future because given where we are, there's some places I think we just can't get to, 
in X number of years. But, um, but there's a range of things we can get to and which one we get to will absolutely make a difference, right? So to, to feel that you're making um, an effort, however modest, to push in the direction of the future you feel is healthy, is healthiest, or at least among the more healthy, <laughs> just for mental health, if nothing else, I find to be really quite powerful. I love it. Well, I mean, you, you've, you're kind of taking me right into the last question that I have for you, which is, you know, when we were um, thinking about questions to ask you, we had like, what's a realistic dream for you for the next 10 years? You know, this idea that we can be aspirational, but it should be rooted in reality. But I also, you know, again, listening here today is like, you know, if you were to send up a prayer, what's your, what's your mm. what is it that, you know, what's, what's the prayer mm. that is somehow, what, what are we what are we really inviting in right now? And you're, you know, if you were to look ahead and you say there's multiple scenarios, you know, that could play out in this world. And can you paint a picture at whatever level feels appropriate, whether it's your relationship to your kids or a national or I don't care, but can you just paint a small picture for us of what feels reachable, but is also a prayer or something that we have to reach for? Yeah. That's deep, Tim. I will. I will try to offer. Uh, it, it won't be a very coherent picture <laughs> that I'll paint, but let me offer a couple thoughts about that. One, let me tell you what my my premise is in this. Um, and two, I think you and I have talked about this uh, some. I really here's something I really believe. I really believe that we as individuals are multiple people, mm. right? By which I mean, yeah, there there's a range of Tims. Right, that might emerge in any given moment, any given day, a range of Tuesdays, a range of Andrews, right? And some of them we are we would embrace sooner than others, right? Some of them are more like that's that's who I want to be. That is closer mm. to my aspiration for myself than, you know, the a-hole I was yesterday, right? I think at the national and the same is true for communities as a whole, for our society as a whole, right? A range of, you know, quote-unquote, Americas is possible, and we've seen it. Mm -hmm. um, you mm -hmm. know, people talk about, you know, marvel at the fact that some of the people, and non-trivial share of the people who voted for Barack Obama the first and or second time also voted for Trump, right? And we're dismayed because, gosh, aren't those two remarkably different people well, yes, in some really important ways, and I think this is a, this is part of the power of leadership, right? Powerful leaders have the power to evoke different versions of us, different versions of community. Barack Obama, you know, said, "Gosh, only in America is my story possible." Right? Suggested that we were, as a people, capable of. Um, yeah, being the kind of inclusive, achieving a, a, a variant, if you will, of the beloved community, we said that is possible right? without giving short shrift to all the shortfalls we have and the historical blah, 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 all of that stuff that said, this is possible, folks, and you all can be part of that, right? I think, frankly, I think that, you know, Donald Trump uh, offered a very different vision, a much more divisive vision in which the people who populated that vision were different than the people who populated right, the Obama vision, but they were some of the same people, right? So, so 
you know, I'm saying, is it possible that, you know, as we may be dismayed again, whatever side of the politics and sociopolitical guns and abortion, all of this stuff right now, I honestly believe, look, on one hand, the range of Tuesdays right, that could emerge tomorrow is going to be relatively narrow on some things, right? There's some Tuesdays that are, that, that are never going to emerge because you'd never be, right? There is no white supremacist Tuesday. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So the potential, I guess what I'm saying is that the, the possibility of evoking, right, versions of ourselves, even now, even in light of what we've seen, that can realize, right, a happier future for us collectively is absolutely there. Mm. I believe that. Then very specifically, you know, thinking about our work at Embrace Race, for example, I think there are, you know, the folks, the hundreds and hundreds, probably doubtless thousands of people who were very angry and went to school board meetings, you know, saying, you know, A, I don't want, you know, my kids wearing masks. I don't want this critical race theory, which, you know, virtually none of them had read <laughs> about. There is, a, I believe, a larger group of people who were absolutely troubled by what they saw, but didn't have talking points, hadn't been mobilized. Imagine if we can mobilize some of those folks, right, um, and organize them um, to advocate for what they believe, to pull in the same direction. Um, I think that we could have, you know, not necessarily in 10 years, but here's Here's my, I think, outer stretches of what's realizable fantasy. For example, we talk about the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic of education. Suppose there were a fourth R, right? That's about racial learning. Mm. Right? Suppose we had, you know, first a few schools at a time, a few school districts at a time, and they're out there. I do believe that there is right, more than enough who would be receptive that we could see this kind of growth to say, you know what? We can do this. Mm. You know, we can take this seriously, have racial learning, meaning how children learn about race, but have them pay curricular attention or pedagogical attention to how we learn about race such that we elevate racial learning, right? None of this colorblindness stuff. We're going to enter a race color conscious, but a certain kind of color conscious approach such that it becomes, you know, we recognize it as as important as reading, writing, arithmetic for what a strong education in a multi-racial, multiracial democracy looks like. I'll, I'll just give one other like possible indicator. Imagine right now the Motion Picture Association of America has right rated R, rated PG, all of that. Imagine a rating system for uh, that took a really robust look at representations of race, ethnicity, gender, class, religion and rated their movies, or I suppose we gave them some tools to come up with, right, so that you would know, and the point is not necessary to avoid movies that didn't rate so well, but to alert people, maybe there are some, you know, complementary resources, so you say, okay, yeah, we don't think, right, we have some panel that say, this isn't so great on, you know, the, um, its representation of Jewish people, or, you know, Muslims, or whatever it might be, but here are some tools, that would allow you to have a fruitful conversation really turn into a learning experience for your children. That makes me so excited. I love 
how you're thinking. And I want to tell you, I just heard recently, and I know we have to wrap up and I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask, I promise the last question. Uh, well, it is the last question, but we just heard recently about folks working in climate, right? And how they've actually, there's been a toolkit developed for Hollywood about how to bring climate stories just into your storytelling, not, not to make a movie about climate change, not to like have it as the key thing that you're talking about, but actually how to bring issues of justice around climate just in to what you're like, of course, it's your practices behind the sets, but also into your storytelling. And I thought, oh, right. What if we did that around issues of equity? Just like, here's how. You want to, we know you want to. Here's how we'll do it. Okay, okay but I know. We can, have I to... just tell you, can I just tell you yeah. Tuesday, kids, what you're talking about, what we're talking about in general in the last five minutes, kids would totally go for that. Kids are not the problem. Yeah. Kids can wrap their mind in no, but we are, right? We're the ones and we use our own sort of frailties and concerns and shortfalls as an excuse not to engage our kids. Kids go with it like that. They're ready to have these conversations. Totally. Absolutely. So, Andrew, our last question is generally, is there a poem or a quote that is kind of giving you life right now or that you're like looking to or leaning on? So do you have a poem or a quote you might share with our listeners? I'll give you a quote. Um, although the poem that popped to mind <laughs> is called The Sea Turtle and the Shark, but the themes are very different. I don't know what's up with that. <laughs> Um, the quote that I've been sitting with really for some time now is from um, Max Lerner, uh, who was a, a, a journalist, a right? very prominent journalist, I think early part or early mid 20th century. But the quote is, I'm, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. I'm a possibilist. Mm. I love that. I love that, right? Again, this is talking about what is possible. Look, it's hard to be optimistic mm. right now. Mm. It's really hard to be optimistic. I wouldn't say I'm optimistic, but is it possible, right, that, you know, as I said earlier, that collectively we could push toward a future that makes our eyes twinkle, right, as opposed to that dismays us further? Absolutely. It is definitely possible. And it turns out, at least for me, and I think for many of us, it is enough. It is enough to know that it's possible as opposed to probable mm. to get out of bed. I can get out of bed. I can do my work with enthusiasm, um, knowing by right, linking arms with folks like you and others who also believe this is possible, also believe it's worth our time and effort because it's possible. It's absolutely possible. And in fact, we determine collectively how possible or not, how probable or not. Uh, so, yeah, that 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 absolutely inspires me. That is the spirit in which certainly I do the work that I do. It's been just brilliant having your incomparable, incorrigible, eye-twinkling, possibilist presence. <laughs> I feel like I was too encouraged or something. I needed to be more less corrigible. <laughs> <laughs> you were too corrigible today? Yes, I was too corrigible. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. 
It's okay. I've totally enjoyed it. Oh, mate, it was beautiful having you with us. Thank, Thank you. you so much for sparing some of your time in the midst of mm-hmm. a busy family life and all the other incredible work you're involved in out in the world. So, like, Thank you. Huge gratitude from us, but also from our listeners. I love the conversation and would love, maybe need to have you in our webinars to find out Mm. all the things, or at least scratch the surface of some of the things you all have been thinking and doing. Well, that'd be lovely. Yeah. Uh, Because you're doing the work and I love it. We'd love to do that for sure. Absolutely. And I didn't even get to tell you about my kids' view on astrology. Andrew, they call astrology space racism. And I just wanted to talk to you about that so much. They're like, what, mommy, you can't make the point. Like, it's it's about where you were born and when you were born. They're like, that's racism. Space racism is what they call astrology. Space racism. I love it. This is new ground for me. <laughs> I'm always ready to learn. Exactly. I'm just pushing, I'm just pushing your thinking. <laughs> I love it. Okay, friends, it's been great. We'll talk to you next time. All right, friends, take care. Bye-bye.